So hello, this is Zane Horowitz and the crew from the Oregon Poison Center. It's May 12th, 2022, and it's time for our monthly uh, journal club. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Fomepazole. Um, we are all anxiously anticipating whether the XTRIP group that talks about dialysis will come up with some recommendations for XTRIP, but it turns out that some of the authors, maybe not the entire group, had published several brand new articles on Fomepazole, when it should be used with or without dialysis, with or without um, other modalities. So we're gonna to get to those at the end, but I first need to kind of set up the whole, uh, where, how we got here. Um, and we need to go back to a, a trial that was done to get Fomepazole past the FDA and onto the market, which is called the Meta Trial stands for metapirazole for toxic alcohol study. Why didn't just call it fomepazole for toxic alcohol study and call it the FEDA trial? I don't know, but it is what it is and it's now 20 years old. Articles done at the end of the 1990s and soon afterward based on this, it was approved for ethylene glycol poisoning. So I am gonna let our medical student tell us about this article from the New England Journal from 1999. Yeah. So before from the standard treatment for ethylene glycol poisoning was either hemodialysis and or a high dose ethanol. And the ethanol would inhibit the alcohol dehydrogenase, which is the enzyme responsible for converting ethylene glycol into its toxic metabolites. But ethanol treatment isn't exactly ideal. It puts the patient at risk for hepatotoxicity and hypoglycemia. And the kinetics of ethanol are rather unpredictable. And so the authors found that, um, based on previous research, fomepazole inhibits alcohol dehydrogenase without having any of the, um, the undesirable effects of ethanol. So between 1995 and 1997, um, they recruited participants for the study, and the inclusion criteria were that the participant needed to have an age greater than 12 and a plasma ethylene glycol of at least uh, 20 milligrams per deciliter or they could have suspected ingestion and three of the four lab findings, an arterial pH below 7.3, a serum bicarb less than 20, and an AG greater than 10, um, and oxaluria. Or they could have suspected ingestion in the preceding hour and a serum osmolar graph greater than 10. Um, the exclusion criteria were administration of ethanol, known reaction to pyrazoles in pregnancy. So 19 patients ended up meeting these criteria. 23 were initially enrolled, but they subsequently found that they didn't meet the, uh, the plasma ethylene glycol concentration needed. So for the treatment protocol, they had fomepazole administered intravenously in a loading dose of 15 milligrams per kilogram, followed by 10 milligrams per kilogram every 12 hours for 48 hours, after which the dose was increased to 15 milligrams per kilogram every 12 hours to compensate for the increased fomepazole metabolism. And patients needed to be treated until their plasma ethylene glycol concentration was less than 20 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and I should note that after the loading dose, there was a criteria set to begin hemodialysis if it was needed, um, such as if, like, uh, one criteria, for example, is if the arterial pH fell below 7.5, or sorry, 7.1. And there was about five other criteria, but I won't get into those. Um, the endpoints of the study were development of renal injury, additional production of ethylene glycol metabolites, um, like an increase in glycolate or increase in urinary excretion of oxalate and development of cranial neuropathies. Um, so for the statistical analysis, the mean values were compared using a student's unpaired t-test and um, 
to compare the correlation between the arterial pH values and the plasma glycolate concentrations. That was determined using a Pearson's correlation coefficient. Uh, for the notable outcomes and characteristics, I should note that 14 out of the 19 patients had consumed uh, radiator antifreeze, 12 had a detectable plasma ethanol levels, and 12 had oxalate crystal urea. Um, during the initial presentation, seven of the 19 patients were awake, seven were comatose, three were inebriated, and two were lethargic. Nine had high serum creatinine levels, and 15 had a metabolic acidosis and low serum bicarb. So for the clinical course, um, 17 out of the 19 patients underwent hemodialysis. Um, the 19 patients were given an average of 3.5 doses of pimepazole, ranging from 1 to 7, over an average of 17.8 hours, ranging from either 5 hours up to 58 hours. Um, they found that the plasma glycolate concentrations decreased progressively, progressively in all these patients, and uh, concomitantly there was an arterial pH value rise and serum bicarbonate concentrations increased as well. And there's one um, figure I want to show. Just up here in the top right, you can see that as um, plasma glycolate concentration falls, arterial, arterial pH concentration will rise, which is exactly what the investigators are hoping for. Um, they also found that urinary oxalate excretion decreased in all of the patients during the treatment. And uh, clinical improvement was correlated with the normalization of the acid-base status. So um, the outcome of the participants, 18 out of the 19 patients survived. There was one who died, but he had an arterial pH of, or they had an arterial pH of 7.05 and then MI before enrollment, and he died of cardiogenic shock. Um, nine out of the 18 patients had high serum creatinine concentrations at enrollment, and that, uh, concent those concentrations further increased. Um, for six out of those nine patients, the serum creatinine concentrations ended up normalizing um, there was no signs of any renal injury in the patients who had lower initial plasma glycolate or had lower initial serum creatinine concentrations. So key points from the discussion section. This study showed that fomepazole is a safe and effective antidote in the treatment of ethylene glycol poisoning. Um, the necessary concentration to inhibit, al inhibit alcohol dehydrogenase is uh, 0.8 micrograms per milliliter, and this concentration was exceeded in all of the patients. Um, the author knew that Fumpazole was inhibiting alcohol dehydrogenase because of the decrease in plasma glycolate and the decrease in urinary oxalate excretion and the resolution of the metabolic acidosis. It took around three hours um, for, to resolve the metabolic acidosis after the initiation of the therapy. They commented a little about, uh, the, little about the creatinine levels. They, they talked about a little bit about this, but um, renal function did decrease in patients with abnormal renal function um, those who had abrenal, abnormal renal function enrollment. Um, but for those patients who had normal renal function enrollment, there was no change during treatment. And this had been seen in previous reports before the study. Um, the only adverse effects possibly related to fomepazole were bradycardia, seizures, and headaches. But um, the author said later on that these were most likely not related to fomepazole. Um, some limitations from the study, um, there was no untreated control group. That's of course, impossible in this scenario, and they did not compare it um, to ethanol treatment. But uh, the authors commented this is um, a much better treatment than ethanol because it doesn't affect the mental status or cause hypoglycemia of the, uh, in the patients. And also maintaining therapeutic plasma concentrations is not difficult. And this article ended up establishing fomepazole as the gold standard for ethylene glycol ingestion.
Yeah, this was the, the big study that was done, and um, as we'll see, the, we went back, or the authors went back to the same group of patients, the same 19 patients, again and again to establish a few important parameters that we should know a few of these numbers. You know, one of the things they established was that the half-life of ethylene glycol, once blocked with uh, fomepazole, is about 19, 19.7 hours. So almost a day, not quite a day, once it's blocked. Um, the other thing they established that there's sort of a, a, a threshold glycolate level above which you have a significant acidosis. We'll get back to that with one of the articles later, so just keep that in the back of your mind. And um, the other thing is back then, because they didn't have a lot of good therapies, almost all of these patients got dialyzed. And again, that may not be necessary, as one of the other articles we'll review today will talk about. Um, so the same group, and there's a variety of people with that group, Jeff uh, uh, Brent and um, McMartin and even Scott Phillips, our colleague to the Northwest in Seattle at that time was with them. They published another article having to do with methanol about a year or so later. We're not going to get into that, but those later created the ability of the FDA to approve this for a second indication, which is methanol. Um, about a year after that, they went back and didn't do anything new, but just aggregated all of the plasma levels that they had obtained and then published the toxicinetics of ethylene glycol during fomepazole therapy. And sort of the take-home message from that article from the Annals of uh, Emergency Medicine in uh, 2000 was that the elimination was first order, so um, they were able to establish a half-life, and the half-life was about 19.7 hours, which they actually mentioned in the first article. That was when it was blocked being with fomepazole. But they also went a little bit further. They also looked at the terminal half-life of fomepazole after the um, uh, terminal half-life of ethylene glycol, after the fomepazole had stopped and after it had fallen below what they said was the therapeutic level of 10 micromoles per liter, which is a little bit higher than what was just mentioned at eight. And they found that the terminal half-life, once the fomepazole isn't working, is about 8.6 hours. So you can use a little bit of these to kind of gauge when all of it may be gone and when um, it, it might have, how often you need to treat them. Um, they also said something fascinating for 22 years ago. In their conclusion, they said an absolute ethylene glycol concentration above 50 should no longer be used as the independent criteria for hemodialysis in patients treated with fomepazole. So suggesting that get, if they come in early enough and they don't have renal injury and they don't have acidosis, if you get fomepazole started, that's all you need, irregardless of what that initial serum ethylene glycol level uh, might be. So I've got to fast forward, because that is not always done, of course. Um, the same group, um, Ken McMartin and Jeff Brent, came back more recently and did, again went back to the well of the same 19 patients and this time analyzed the fomepazole elimination, not the ethylene glycol elimination. In fact, they used the aggregate methanol and ethylene glycol poison groups from the two arms of the meta trial. They published this in 2022, so just this year in the Journal of Med Talks. 
And they found a couple of other interesting but not dramatically different aspects of pharmacokinetics. So they found that bimepazole actually follows zero order elimination as opposed to ethylene glycol, which is first order. They found that it falls between 13 and 17 micromoles per liter per hour. So kind of like alcohol, which falls at about 20 to 22 points per hour, this falls at about maybe 15 points per hour. And during hemodialysis, where they looked at that group, the half-life, if you will, is about three hours. So therefore, what we have been doing all along, which is treating patients with uh, Q12-hour doses, going up to Q4-hour doses during hemodialysis would be enough to keep the level above the threshold. And in fact, that's what they found, that there wasn't any levels that fell below a critical trial level. In fact, most of the levels were at least 10 times higher than they needed to be. Going back to the original 1999 pool of 19 patients that were in the study. So they basically said, what we've been doing for 20 years is, is great. So why should we change things? Well, let's go to another article that had recently come out. All the remaining articles are from ClinTalks. And we're going to have Lara tell us about whether or not during hemodialysis you need one dose to start, and that's all, one and done, or more. So Lara, go ahead and tell us about that. Thank you. 
time of hemodialysis, et cetera. The patients were divided into two groups, those who received just one dose of bimepazole prior to hemodialysis, and those who received multiple doses of bimepazole both before and during hemodialysis. They ended up including 25 patients. Of those, the starting ethylene glycol levels ranged widely with a median of 292 milligrams per deciliter in those who received a single dose and 170 milligrams per deciliter in those who received multiple doses of bimepazole. All of the patients had starting metabolic acidosis with a median bicarb of 11 in those who received a standard dose and 9 in those who received multiple doses, and both groups had a median pH of 7.1. The results were basically that the multiple dose group trended toward renal dysfunction. So those who received multiple doses and hemodialysis tended to end up with renal dysfunction, and they also ended up needing hemodialysis for a longer course when compared to those who received a single dose. The conclusion that the researchers made was that administering one dose of bimepazole did not lead to development of renal dysfunction during hospitalization, and therefore that it is possible that in a select group of patients, a single dose of bimepazole prior to hemodialysis may be sufficient. They did acknowledge the lack of randomization allows for confounding effects and acknowledged that a potential counterargument to the single dose protocol could be that continued dosing of bimepazole may be needed with higher ethylene glycol concentrations, although they also acknowledged that the patient in their study who had the highest level of ethylene glycol was also the patient who had the highest level they had ever seen in any documentation, and that patient did just fine, did not end up developing renal dysfunction. Yeah, so an interesting sort of study of opportunity, and I think the acknowledgement has to be that there were really only five patients who got the single dose of bimepazole and hemodialysis, and four out of five did well. And amazingly, and this is again a single case report anecdote embedded within the case series, is a patient presented with an ethylene glycol level of 2,650, 2,650, got a single dose of loading dose of bimepazole, got dialyzed, and did not develop acidosis or renal failure quite impressively. So the question is raised is, you know, can you get by with just loading them with bimepazole, and because both of these concentrations are dialyzed out at about the same rate, the same concentrations, is that enough to block any further metabolism? I'm not sure this paper definitively answers that, but it certainly sets up the possibility that for most cases that may be enough. Certainly if you can get levels back in real time, you can get a level towards the end of dialysis and see where you're at and see if you need that second dose. So currently our standard is still to either dose at Q4 hours or start at end of dialysis to dose bimepazole, but this raises the question 
whether or not that second dose is absolutely necessary in most cases. One could also argue that the patients who came in later and had more renal dysfunction had more of a toxic metabolite on board, which they didn't measure, and those are the ones who perhaps needed the multiple doses of uh, fomepazole because they were more worrisome as far as their lab findings. Again, hard to sort that out from just 20 patients in one arm and five patients in the other arm as far as creating any statistical differences between the two, but some food for thought there. Um, any comments? No? All right. So the other thing that comes up is not hemodialysis, but a lot of times uh, the nephrologists don't work the same 24-7 that everybody else does sometimes. And it's easier in the ICU to just start CRRT or CKRT as it's being involved uh, in usage. So what is the optimum dosing for fomepazole if we do this continuous clearance rather than immediate, immediate hemodialysis? A recent paper from Clintox addresses this. Again, an observational study. So Matt, tell us about that. So this study is called fomepazole dosing during continuous renal replacement therapy. So essentially what the authors wanted to look at was the kinetics of elimination of fomepazole during the period of continuous renal replacement therapy to see if the current dosing regimens are adequate or if we could change dosing regimens possibly um, for future studies. Um, as of now, the current dosing that's typically done for CRRT is dosing the fomepazole um, about every eight hours and or giving a, uh, an infusion at about a half a milligram per kilogram per hour as compared to intermittent hemodialysis where the infusion rate is one mg per kg per hour with dosing every four hours. As we discussed earlier, this is because fomepazole is a small molecule and it's easily cleared via the membrane. The reason though that the, the prior studies have suggested lower um, rates for, the, for CRT for fomepazole redosing is because the rate of clearance of solutes in the CRRT circuit is lower than hemodialysis so that the, the drug will be, or I guess the antidote itself, won't be cleared from your system so your therapeutic level should, make, should be higher over a longer period of time. What these authors wanted to do was, in a prospective fashion, look at patients who came into their hospital in Norway and evaluate uh, what the what the fomepazole concentrations were in these patients. They looked at the, the patients kind of fell into two categories: either they got the intermittent dosing every eight hours after the initial bolus dose of a uh, bolus loading dose of 15 mg per kg. I think almost all the patients got a round of intermittent hemodialysis, and then later on were given the next dose of fomepazole and either got it intermittently dosed at every eight hours or received an infusion. A total of 11 patients were included in the study. They varied in, in baseline characteristics. Some were methanol ingestions, some were ethylene glycol ingestions. Some they don't know what happened and it was just a presumed toxic alcohol ingestion, but concentrations were never obtained. All were relatively sick and had um, or I guess most have pretty low constant low pHs and the majority less than 7.2. Um, but they, the goal of this wasn't to look at the kinetics of clearance of the toxic alcohols, but rather the fenepazole itself. One patient was excluded because they died too soon before they got any significant fenepazole concentrations. So of the 10 remaining patients, nine of the 10 received 
intermittent dosing of femepazole, only one patient received a continuous infusion. In order for femepazole to maintain an adequate serum concentration, in order to inhibit uh, aldehyde dehydrogenase, um, and that is preventing the toxic metabolites of the toxic alcohols, either it's glyoxalate or formic acid, um, sorry, glyoxylic acid or formic acid, you need to have a serum concentration of 10 micromoles per liter. In the patient that was getting the continuous infusion of the femepazole at half a mg per kilogram per hour, um, their concentration remained at 70 micromoles per liter, so more than adequate over the entire study period. They didn't actually graph it out to show how it varied, but it, that seems like it's more than adequate. Uh, unfortunately, it was only one patient who received a continuous infusion. In the other group of the nine patients, they, they all had the bolus dosing, and then they did a few graphs to show like, what the concentrations look like over a period of time. And they noted that in all the patients, for the, essentially the first 30 hours, the femepazole concentrations remained ad adequate. One patient, for unclear reasons, received over nearly 40 hours of uh, CRT after the time period of hemodialysis, and only the serum concentrations of femepazole at about hour 35 fell below the threshold, threshold dosing um, concentration uh, that's necessary to maintain adequate femepazole concentrations in your blood to inhibit aldehyde dehydrogenase. The clinical impact of this is a little less certain because you would, one would assume that by two days out, pretty much all the toxic drug metabolites have been cleared from the patient's body and their pH should be normalized. They didn't provide actual data about that patient at that time period, but um, it's possible they were still being dialyzed uh, or get, getting continuous renal replacement therapy at that point um, for renal failure from, um, this was patient number one, from uh, their their ingestion. It's a little unclear exactly though why they would need five, uh, or sorry, two full days nearly of um, renal replacement therapy for a methanol ingestion unless it just wasn't clearing well or they just didn't have it, the return of the lab values to turn it off. That being said, um, the, the dosing otherwise for the first two days remain adequate. The, uh, sorry, first day and a half remain adequate. The authors did point out though that it, that the reason that the patient's concentration may have fallen below the, the treatment line for femepazole dosing might be related to the induction of CYP2E1, which is the hepatic um, enzyme that metabolizes femepazole. In most people, the induction takes about two days, but there are reports of people in the literature of having induction within one day, and it's possible that this patient just fell into that category. So it's a little unclear. They also did some analysis of looking whether the femepazole clearance follows zero-order kinetics or first-order kinetics. Overall, they couldn't really make a determination as the regression square coefficients were pretty high in both cases. It seemed like it trended closer to first order than zero order, but there, but unfortunately, the, they didn't have sufficient data to, and the data wasn't of robust enough quality to be able to determine which of the two it is, so it could be either. That being said, they did make some estimated half-life clearances, assuming it was first order. And uh, half-life clearance of femepazole range from about four hours in some people to over 10 and a half hours in some other people. So unfortunately, it's kind of hard to determine how long it's going to last um, and, how, and what, what the dosing is going to be. I think it would be interesting moving forward that, I mean, maybe um, we'll be talking about this a little bit later, but doing a study of just continuous infusion since it seemed like that was more than adequate. And not only is that probably easier for everyone in the system since you only have to make one bag and infuse it over a long period of time and don't have to worry about redosing, 
but it seemed like, at least from this one patient, it seemed more than adequate to maintain a necessary concentration to inhibit metabolism of the toxic alcohols. Yeah, it was a very much a, a mixed selection of patients. So some ingested methanol, some ingested ethylene glycol. Some of them, they presumed ingested one or the other, but never got levels to prove it. Um, some of them, well, one of them got continuous dosing, and the rest of them got the standard that we use now, uh, intermittent dosing. A few of them got hemodialysis first and then got transitioned to CVVH or CVVHD. So not all of them got the same continuous clearance modality. And then they got levels sort of here and there on all of them and tried to make some sense of half-lives and clearances and everything else. So to their credit, I'll say these few points is one, most of these patients were pretty sick like six or seven of them had pHs in the six point something level when they showed up. So very acidotic, clearly in our mind nowadays would need to be uh, hemodialyzed just to get their pH fixed quickly. And therefore, if you can do hemodialysis, like why transition back to something else unless there was in fact renal failure that needed to be treated at that point. So it doesn't answer the question is like, what do you do for the not so sick patients that you can't get hemodialysis because it's a resource poor area where you don't have that thing available? Can you just use the standard dosing of Femepazole and CRRT for a few days and take care of those patients? So that question is really not addressed by these really sick patients who got hemodialysis in many cases first. I would say possibly extrapolating the data that what that looking at the graphs, I would suspect that the concentration of 12 hours would still be above the line for the first day and a half or so. Um, but that, that would be purely extrapolation and, and could put, a, put you at risk though if someone didn't metabolize things oddly. Yeah, I'd say their fomepazole levels were above that threshold that is now repeatedly quoted mm -hmm. of 10 microMoles per liter that is enough to inhibit alcohol dehydrogenase. So, it's hard to know whether this is really going to change what we do. I think we do what we can do, which is if you're in a place where they can't do dialysis or they can't get it done immediately, but you have to wait a half a day or something for the right set of people and personnel to show up or be transferred somewhere else, um, you block them, you correct their pH if it's that severe with bicarb, and then you uh, do supportive care until they can be um, dialyzed. Methazole, of course, is part of the treatment. And I, you know, the big question is: Can we just do a constant infusion, or we need to keep going Q12, Q4, or Q8, depending on which dialytic modality we're, we're choosing? I want to make one correction too. I think I misspoke earlier, and I said Methazole inhibits aldehyde dehydrogenase. That's incorrect. It's alcohol dehydrogenase. All right. Yeah. So just to clear the record. Sure. So. Remember glycolate? We talked about glycolate at the beginning here, and basically, um, this is sort of the next two articles are sort of meta meets X trip. Like, we, took, we picked half a team from one group and half a team from the other group and put them together, and they looked at a variety of variables that have to do with uh, uh, markers and prognostic and who does and does not need to be treated. So, first off, let's, let's talk about glycolate. Most of our labs don't 
measure it. We've had a couple over the years that have, and we're thankful when we see that level because we know that ethylene glycol has already been turned into a toxic acid, and then we can make judgments based on that. Remember, the initial study said levels above eight are correlate pretty well. So let's go back and look at all the, all the reports that are out there and see if we can make sense of glycolate levels. So tell us about that, Joe. All right, so this paper is called Serum Glycolate Concentrations, Its Prognostic Value and Its Correlation to Surrogate Markers in Ethylene Glycol Exposure. So the clinical question they're trying to ask is, so basically, as he talked about, glycolate is a key toxic metabolite that impacts prognosis, but these results are not widely available, and when you get them, they might not come back in a useful time frame. So they're trying to, they're performing a systematic review of the literature to try and see uh, at what glycolate concentration is their predictor of mortality or acute kidney injury. So the goal in this paper was to assess the prognostic value of the initial glycolate concentration on the occurrence of a AKI or mortality in patients with ethylene glycol exposures. This was the prognostic arm of the study. And then for the surrogate arm of the study, they wanted to identify surrogate markers that correlated best with glycolate uh, concentrations like uh, anion gap bicarb level. So the design of this was a systematic review of the literature. Uh, the inclusion criteria, they basically included all study types that were reported human ethylene glycol exposures. Uh, these were all eligible, including interventional trials, comparative studies, observational cohorts, and, and case reports. Uh, all articles containing original case-level data were included also. Uh, articles containing at least one case with at least one serum glycolate concentration reported were included. And reporting of outcome data, including uh, any inclusion of kidney function or survival for the prognostic arm, or measure of metabolic acid-base status, such as anion gap, base excess, uh, pH, simultaneously with glycolate concentration was included for the surrogate study. Exclusion criteria included if things were excluded if they contained no original data, in vitro and animal experiments, cases uh, for the cases that were excluded were cases involving co-exposure with other toxic alcohols such as methylenol, propylene glycol, diethylene glycol. Uh, glycolate is caused by poisoning other than ethylene glycol such as glycine exposure. If the reported acid-base measured appeared flawed mathematically, if the glycolate concentration is estimated instead of directly measured, such as people using what they call the lactate gap, or if the glycolate concentration was measured uh, post-mortem. So the primary uh, outcomes where they were looking at AKI, uh, quote, defined as the presence at any time during emission of kidney disease improved global outcome stage two, R3 acute kidney injury, AKI, or uh, IE serum concentrations greater uh, are at least 2.0 times the baseline or reference value for age and gender, or if the creatinine concentration was not reported, the presence of anuria or AKI or acute kidney failure was accepted. And mortality was also looked at, defined as all-cause inpatient 28-day mortality. And then the, in the surrogate arm of the study, the outcomes they were looking at were blood pH, base excess, and uh, bicarbonate concentrations, anion gap, ethylene glycol concentrations determined simultaneously with glycolate concentrations.
So for the, the prognostic study, they calculated the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value of the threshold glycolate concentration that predicted acute kidney injury and mortality. And then they determined the glycolate concentration corresponding to 100% negative predictive value for mortality and 95% negative predictive value for acute kidney injury. For the surrogate study, uh, they calculated the glycolate concentration and surrogate correlations uh, using linear regression analysts and continuous outcome measures of the goodness of FIT or the R2. So the results, uh, uh, 1,531 articles were identified, uh, 605 were potentially eligible, 32 were included, uh, in the prognostic arm, 30 articles were used, which reflected 137 cases for 133 patients that had kidney function or survival outcome data included. And for the surrogate arm, this was 31 articles, which was 50, 154 cases uh, from 150 patients. So the median glycolate concentration for the whole cohort was uh, 11.2, and this ranged from 0 to 38 uh, millimoles per liter. The median glycolate concentration in those developing acute kidney injury was 19.1 uh, millimoles per liter. Mortality was 22.1 millimoles per liter. Both were significantly higher than those that did not develop any of these complications. 93% uh, of patients included in this study, though, were treated with at least one uh, competitive alcohol dehydrogenase inhibitor, such as ethanol fomepazole, and 80% of these patients underwent extracorporeal treatment, like hemodialysis. Uh, the incidence of acute kidney injury was 49%, and mortality was 13%. So they found uh, that the optimal glycolate concentration threshold for breaking acute kidney injury was 12.9 millimoles per liter, or around 13 millimoles per liter. And this had a sensitivity of 78.5%, specificity of 88.1, and the positive predictive value was 86.4, negative predictive value was 80.9. The glycolate concentration threshold for 95% negative predictive value for acute kidney injury was 6.6 .6 millimoles per liter. And this was at a 96.9% sensitivity and a 62.7% specificity. The glycolate concentration best predicting mortality was 19.6 millimoles per liter with a sensitivity of 61.1%, specificity of 81.4%, uh, PPV of 33.3, and NPV of 93.2. And also importantly, the glycolate concentration threshold for 100% negative predictive value for mortality was 8.3 millimoles per liter, and this had a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 35.6%. Uh, the glycolate concentration correlating best with the, uh, with the anion gap, and this correlation was uh, uh, had a concentration of anion gap to glycolate of 0.9 to 1. The second uh, best correlation was bicarb, then you had pH and base excess. Uh, no correlation between Glycolate and ethylene concentrations, uh, sorry, no correlation between the glycolate and ethylene glycol concentrations were found. Uh, so this paper was fairly interesting. They come to con the conclusion that like, I think clinically, you, I think this would be best used for, you're trying to, to if, you're, if you don't have, if you have a patient that has an ethylene glycol uh, toxicity, you don't have a glycolate concentration. It seems like you can use the anion gap to predict it. There's a figure in here, figure 
four or table four where they so if eight is about the threshold where you start getting uh mortality if you had eight correlates with an anion gap of 24 in the theoretical calculated estimates and 24.3 in the observed clinical estimates so a glycolate concentration of eight correlates with an anion gap of 24 so theoretically may, maybe you can if you have an anion gap less than 24 this patient has like a, a less of a chance of dying but if you also look at how they calculated the anion gap a lot of there's a little bit of weirdness like a lot of these were just theoretic calculations that they used if they weren't mentioned and a lot of these tables are all just calculations and not like observed data that they use so i don't know how clinically uh how I would use this, how like often I would use it. I think it's like another tool in our belt to if we're dealing with a patient who maybe is in a rural area without uh, you know, ethylene glycol concentrations with maybe all they can get is the CBC and a like metabolic panel that we can maybe use the anion gap to help predict this, uh, their treatment. But I don't know how, I think a lot, I think there's some more studies that need to be done before we can use a lot of this information. Yeah, I think it's a very uh, provocative uh, study where they basically looked at everything that's published and tried to extract a giant table of anion gap, glycolate levels, pH levels, and outcomes. And despite doing what we always look for in studies, sensitivity and specificity, what we often care about in emergency medicine and by default toxicology, is what's the negative predictive value? How can I say with either 95% assurance or 100% assurance that if you have X, the bad thing that I'm really worried about is not gonna happen. That's the negative predictive value. And they were able to come up with a 95% and 100% negative predictive value of glycolate levels in the cases where they're able to find it, which fit, truthfully, the original study where they were able to measure glycolate levels back in meta, but now they have 130 some patients to, to do it. So to go over what those were, um, the, the risk factor for uh, AKI is a glycolate concentration of less than 8.3 millimoles or using the more common uh, units, 63 milligrams per deciliter, so even lower. So if you're below that, you won't develop AKI, and I guess the presumption is you don't need dialysis, you just need a blocker. And then for an, uh, any sort of mortality, the level is higher. It's up to 98. We can certainly round it up to 100 milligrams per deciliter, which is probably an easier number to, to work with. So that now begs the next question, which you alluded to, is if I was going to choose patients to just get pomepazole and not get dialysis, what would I use and how good are those markers or labs at telling me who those patients are. So many of the same authors, sort of the meta X trip aggregate set of authors, did a, another article in ClinTox this year. And Ruby's going to tell us about that one. My article is treating ethylene glycol poisoning with alcohol dehydrogenase inhibition, but without extra uh, corporeal treatments, and also this is a systematic review. So currently, 
Criteria for hemodialysis for ethylene glycol poisoning includes severe metabolic acidemia, kidney impairment, electrolyte abnormalities, or really deteriorating conditions despite medical management. Without that, typically authors argue with a high concentration greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter, while some authors argue that it is adequate to treat them with fomepazole without hemodialysis. So the objective of this study, there were really two parts. They wanted to identify indicators that would predict failure in patients who received either monotherapy with ethanol or fomepazole without HD or CRRT. Additionally, they wanted to validate if an anion gap that, uh, like Joe said, had previously been used as a marker for glycolic concentration is associated with acute kidney injury or mortality. So for the methods of this, they included human studies of doing this literature review, all, all human studies, and had excluded in vitro or animal experiments. As for the outcome, they had defined treatment failure if any of the following uh, had occurred after blocking. So they had an increase of an anion gap greater than five, worsening acidemia with a decreased bicarb or a base excess greater than five, or really a drop in their pH if they had worsening creatinine or oliguria, if hemodialysis was performed as a rescue treatment, death or any new or worsening neurological symptoms. As for their case exclusion, similarly to they excluded cases uh, if it included other toxic alcohols, if ethylene glycol exposure could not be confirmed, or if um, really the timing was unclear if they received hemodialysis or whatnot, or unclear if they were blocked or given a different uh, blocking agent. Also, if ethylene glycol was undetected, then in this role, there's really no role for um, an alcohol dehydrogenase inhibitor. Or if cases where patients received both ethanol and fomepazole, they also excluded. So for the results of this, for in the group that just had ethanol monotherapy, had a 16.7 failure rate in 180 cases, and also 17 deaths, which 15 of those patients already had a markedly high acidemia prior to blockade. But even in cases where there was just modest or moderate acidemia or kidney impairment, they had failed even just with ethanol alone. Uh, as compared to the no treatment failure group, those who had failed the ethanol monotherapy had a significantly higher ethylene glycol dose, a longer time that it took them for them to present to the hospital, a higher ethylene glycol concentration, and a longer time to receiving uh, um, the blocker, and also you know worsening really bad signs of acidemia. So a low pH, a high anion gap, and a low uh, serum bicarb and also a higher creatinine. Those patients, uh, those factors were seen more in the, the, the patients who had failed monotherapy with just ethanol. As for the fomepazole monotherapy group, there was a less failure rate of 8.7% in more cases, 231 cases in this one, so roughly 50 more cases. They had only three deaths in here in which those three deaths, those patients already had signs of late ethylene glycol toxicity. So they had an extremely high anion gap like into the 40s and pHs of 6.7, 6.8. And 
as, to, as compared to the group that had no treatment failure, those who had failed Fomepazole alone, uh, similarly to ethanol, also had a lower serum pH, a higher anion gap, a lower bicarb, lower base excess, and a higher creatinine. Um, and even in, there were some cases with a very high concentration of ethylene glycol, like greater than 1,200 milligrams per deciliter, those patients still had a more favorable outcome, um, and it was really only the ones that had severe acidemia on presentation that they did not. As for now the second part of the study, they looked at the anion gap, and there were 207 cases that they reviewed in which the majority of those cases received the mepazole alone, and in, 30, in 132 cases where their uh, anion gap was less than 24, none died. Comparatively, 8% of patients died if they had an anion gap that was greater than 28. And a, a quarter of those patients with a really high anion gap had either stage two or three acute kidney injury and had required hemodialysis. So in, in summary, I think this reaffirms current practice that we have in which a rule for blockade, really for patients who have more of mild uh, toxicity where they aren't profoundly acidemic yet, they don't have a markedly elevated uh, anion gap, I think there's a role for fomepazole, and it, it begs the question of like, do these patients need to be transferred if they're in a resource-limited uh, environment, if you catch them early on? Similarly, I think it also reaffirms the role of hemodialysis in patients with severe toxicity or acidemia. Um, as for ethanol, you know, I think currently we use it mainly as an adjunctive therapy in places where even fomepazole isn't available and it's a bridging modality until we can get them to a facility where that is available or where they can get hemodialysis. I think it was a little unsettling though that even patients who had therapeutic ethanol concentrations who theoretically should be blocked still developed an organ injury but that's also because one of the thoughts behind it is that um, alcohol dehydrogenase inhibition by ethanol is, its affinity is a lot weaker than fomepazole. Um, so, you know, it, it, yeah. And then, um, it, it, especially with ethylene glycol concentrations, and they had noted above a certain amount, so greater than 62, Ethylene glycol by its, uh, I'm sorry, ethanol by itself may be insufficient as a treatment modality. So. Yeah, this was sort of the big thought-provoking article, um, which kind of builds on what was suggested back in the article of 2000, which was basically looking at the pharmacokinetics of the original meta trial, is do patients who come in and are not sick, and we'll define what that means in a, you know, a second, um, can we just get by with blocking them with methazole? Do they really need hemodialysis? And their threshold that they looked at by looking through a systematic review of the literature is actually quite high, certainly an anion gap of 24. I mean, in my mind, is anything above 20 is pretty substantial, and 24 is pretty high, and I'd be nervous if I couldn't get any of the labs about dialyzing that person. But they seem to have shown, looking at all their numbers, that if your anion gap was 24 and below, you didn't de uh, develop acute kidney injury and you certainly didn't die. 
And if you were able to push your anion gap threshold up to 28, some of those people developed kidney injury, but nobody died. So those are sort of the numbers if you need to make a decision on triaging to a dialysis center or um, if you're in a place where there is no dialysis, who can, which patients can be treated with just pomepazole alone? I don't think this answers the question on alcohol alone, so I think that's difficult. So it's not going to work in some um, area like an underdeveloped, underdeveloped country where they neither have pomepazole nor dialysis and they have to use alcohol monotherapy. I don't think the answer to that question is obtainable with this data. But it certainly suggests much higher anion gaps if you treat them early with pomepazole, we'll do okay. We'll do just fine with our standard treatment of pomepazole. Um, but as we've seen with the other articles, the dosing regimens we use for CRRT and the dosing regimens we use for hemodialysis are fine, and I certainly don't recommend changing them based on any of these studies, but um, perhaps one large single dose is all you need for dialysis, and perhaps um, CRRT is a reasonable intermediary step if you can't do dialysis and you're able to just dose from epazole and it's easier to set up just with your intensive care team and not involve a, uh, a dialysate technician and a nephrologist in, uh, in the uh, treatment team. So some food for thought on fomepazole, when we should and shouldn't use it, or more specifically dialysis, and when we can avoid it and avoid the transfer in the middle of the night discussion, sometimes heated discussion, with a consultant about who does or does not need to be emergently uh, dialyzed. Um, it'd be nice going forward if we can like have some universal protocol that said everyone gets a glycolate level and we knew what those are, everyone gets a fomepazole level, everyone gets an ethylene glycol or methanol level, and we can put this into some big prospective database and see what the outcomes are, whether they're randomized or just by physician selection of who gets what, figuring out what, what the real cutoffs are for these. But I like the use of the negative predictive values for some of these because I think it helps us feel a little bit more comfortable in these cases when you say, well, you're not going to die if these numbers aren't met. You're not going to develop renal failure if these numbers aren't met. So that is fomepazole in um, ethylene glycol only. We didn't really talk about methanol very much. And you'll have to stay tuned in the next month or two to hear about fomepazole with acetaminophen, because that is the discussion for yet another Oregon Poison Center Journal Club.